I get to do something pretty fun today because I absolutely love this guy, J.R.R. Tolkien. And, and if you've been around for a while, you know that I do. If you know me, you know that I love this guy. Um, our son, Asher, has recently been getting into – he reads little biographies. Like they have little biography books that are around his age level, like a first grader uh, reading level. And he's doing really well reading. And anyway, of course, I picked out the book for him you know, because <laughs> I want him to love this person as much as – I do. Does anyone do that? Does any parents do that? Like you're, you're trying to like carefully orchestrate things so that like in 30 years your kids absolutely love the same things that you do. Anyone else? Just me. <laughs> so trying to like, I, I got it. So I got him this book. He has to read anyway for school. So I got him this book, and it's a little biography of J.R.R. Tolkien. And it's, I mean, read everything that he ever wrote because it's awesome. But I, I want to talk to you a little bit about a book that he wrote called The Silmarillion. Is, is a book that he wrote. And maybe some of you have heard of Lord of the Rings. Maybe if you, Unless you were living under a rock the last 20 years, you've probably heard of Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit, um, you've remained into you know, major motion pictures and all that good stuff. But before they were movies, they were books. And before they were books, and these are like these epic books that a lot of people have read and people have loved for you know, 60, 70 years or whatever it's been. Um, but, but these books actually started as a way for this guy to make up languages. Like, that's how it's, this is how nerdy this is. So in case you didn't know, like, the layers of nerdy that this is, this is a fictional world that was created by a guy just so that he could make up, like, made-up dwarf language. Like, that's the kind of thing that we're dealing with here in terms of just how, like, inside baseball this book is. Well, the Silmarillion is a story about the mythology behind the world that made Lord of the Rings. And the reason why I bring it up is because the myth that J.R.R. Tolkien uses to talk about the creation of his world is, has some direct parallels to the creation story that we find in the Bible. And it also has some really profound implications. So if you can imagine this, he sets up this world. I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but he sets up this world where there's a God figure and there's a Satan figure. There's the light and the dark, right? And he sets up this world and how he begins the whole universe is that him and all the angels, good and bad, start singing. And they sing songs and they bring up melodies. And as they sing songs... Their songs are what create the world, the universe. It's pretty amazing, pretty amazing. And there's this one element that I want to bring out today. And I'm, I'm gonna, if you're around Hope Springs for a while, you're going to hear this like a hundred times. And it's great every time, so just enjoy it. But in this song, the satanic figure in the song starts to create dissonance in the music. You know, like when we play bad notes up here and it creates dis dissonance? That never happens, right? But you know when you sing a wrong note, it's out of key, it's out of tune, and it creates dissonance. It creates something that your ear says, no. Alarm bells go off in your head, and they say, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. And so this darkness creates this dissonance in the song to try to wrestle control of the song away from God. To ruin the song. So it would be like if we're playing a slow jam... You know, and then all of a sudden Tyler turns up his guitar to 11 and just shreds his solo and tries to steal, tries to take the song, the power of the song away. And 
the dissonance grows and it grows and it gets more and more ugly to the ear. And it seems like because of one bad note, one bad singer, one bad instrumentalist, that the song itself could come undone. Meaning that the plans and the purposes of God could be ruined by the dissonance. Well, to spoil it for you, and I might read from it here at the end of our time together, but to spoil it for you, God finds a way to take that dissonance, to take the wrong notes, play too loudly and at the wrong time, to take all of the darkness and all of the nastiness and all of the the struggle for control, and he weaves it into his song. And he finds a way. I don't know if you've ever listened to a great piece of music, but every great piece of music has a moment in it where something doesn't seem to fit. And then something switches. And it becomes even better. Even more beautiful. Even more wonderful. Well, I want to ask you a question as we begin our time today. And it's this. In your life, in your story, where are the bad notes? Where's the dissonance in your life? Where does your life not sound right? Not feel right? Where is something not fitting? Where is the darkness trying to wrestle control away from the light in you? Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes. Take a minute to breathe. To get quiet. To get focused. And I want you to think about that question. Where is the dissonance in you? If your life was a song, if your life was a story, where is their conflict? Where is their tension? Where is their dissonance? Maybe it sounds like this. Is there something you're doing that you know is not you? That you know is off? That you know is hurting you and the people around you? Is there a relationship that's not right? Where's the dissonance in your life? God, would you help us to, with your spirit, with your word, to uncover the dark things in us, the places where there's dissonance, where there is distraction, where there is conflict and tension. God, so often we come to you with those things, we come to you with the dissonance, and we ask you to just wave a wand and just fix it, just take it away, solve it. God, would you show us through your word today, through the story and what it uncovers, how you can make dead things alive again, how you can make old things new again, 
How you can take things that don't fit, things that are broken, things that are dark, wrong turns, missed opportunities. You can make something beautiful out of the mess. God, would you both uncover the mess and show us by your grace how you want to make all things new today. Show us that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to pick up in Genesis 45, but before we dive right into that, I want to remind you that this is it. All that we've been building up to for the last, really since the beginning of the year, last six weeks or whatever it's been, has been leading to this chapter and this couple verses right here. So all that buildup, all that time, those eight chapters of story, they've all been leading right here to this moment. Everything before has been leading up to it. Everything that comes after is honestly derivative of this. But before the last few verses of Genesis 44, the chapter before the one we're jumping into today, Joseph was going to basically steal his brother Benjamin and be rid of his brothers and his family for the rest of his life. He has a plan to rescue his brother, his brother Benjamin, his favorite brother, his actually only brother that he cares about, and to ride off into the Egyptian sunset and just forget about the old thing. But in the last few verses of Genesis 44, his brother Judah obliterates Joseph's plan. Judah's the same guy who came up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery. So many years and decades before. Judah, who came up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery, offers himself up to be a slave. So the family won't lose Benjamin, their father's favorite son, now that he thinks Joseph is dead. Benjamin, who is another son of Rachel like Joseph. Benjamin, who they could be rid of. Who they could kill their father with grief in the process of doing this thing of just letting him go with Joseph. Judah offers himself up. Judah, who has done awful, terrible, horrible things to Joseph, offers to be Joseph's slave so that his brother Benjamin can go free. This is the straw that breaks the camel's back of this story. This offer of Judah is like a lightning bolt to Joseph. And it wakes him up. And it pulls this disguised plan of God that we haven't seen exactly where it's going. That no one could see where it would lead to. It just pulls the disguise off of it and says, surprise. This is what God's been working towards the whole time. It is only through Judah's willingness to sacrifice himself that this happens. That's just a prologue to what we're looking at here today in God's word. Look at Genesis 45, verse one. Picture Joseph, he's a second in command in Egypt and his brothers are there bowing at his feet. They don't recognize that Joseph knows who they are. They don't know who he is. He knows who they are. And this is the setting for this dramatic 
revelation. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph, who had been sold into slavery and had gone and risen to power as the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, who Pharaoh had essentially abdicated his empire and his leadership to. The empire is not allowed into the most powerful place in this story. Judah's love and his offer to be a sacrifice cuts through all the pain and it cuts through all the guilt and it cuts through all the resentment. It cuts through the guilt of the brothers. It cuts through the cunning of Joseph. Like a laser, it pierces Joseph's heart and he can no longer hide anymore in any way. Who's running the show here? You know, if you were with us last time, you might have thought that it was Joseph who was running the show because he's super powerful and because he manipulated his brothers before this and because he concocts this situation where he's in a power position. But here we have Joseph completely falling apart, completely unraveling emotionally. Who is writing this story? Who's in charge here? Joseph said to his brothers in verse 3, I am Joseph. This is me. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. No more games. No more manipulation. No more hiding. No more toughness. Mercy and grace just cut through all of it. One moment of love. One moment of courage from Judah changes everything. And now he reveals, I'm Joseph. I'm the one who is reportedly dead by your hand, who you sold into slavery. I am alive. The dreams of God that were given to Joseph as a kid have won out over all the nightmares. And the brothers are terrified, just like you would be if you thought you saw a ghost. It's like when people meet a resurrected Jesus in the New Testament. They don't know what their eyes are seeing. They don't know how to process what they're looking at. Things are not what we thought they were. Look at verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph. He has to repeat himself. The one you sold into Egypt. Do you remember? We've already seen from the brothers that not only do they remember, they can't even imagine a world where they're not going to get punished. And where their family is not literally going to end because of the guilt and the shame and the pain and the devastation that they wrought by selling their brother into slavery. He says, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Their guilt had tortured them for decades. And he says, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. This is next level forgiveness, you know. This is not just a forgiveness that 
for Joseph just looks inward, but it's a forgiveness that looks outward. This isn't just I forgive you. But Joseph gives his brothers an invitation to forgive themselves. This is a complete reimagination of the story of Joseph. They were the ones that sold him into slavery. But look at how he talks about it. He doesn't say, you sold me into slavery and you were in charge of my story. Joseph has the courage and the perspective to say that it was to save lives that God set me ahead of you. If you haven't been with us, Joseph has risen to power in Egypt for a certain place and a certain time. God had given Pharaoh dreams and he gave him dreams of famine and of plenty. And Joseph's job was to stock up the plenty so that they would have enough food to get through the famine. It is that famine that initially brought Joseph's brothers back to him in Egypt looking for food. And Joseph looks at his story, giving them an incredible gift of retelling their story. And he says that this was God sending me. It wasn't you selling me. It was God sending me. And this power to do this new thing comes from this risky self-disclosure, this honesty by Joseph. This honest willingness to be a sacrifice from Judah that triggers Joseph to pull down the facade and to be honest. And now we have a new story. He says this in verse 6. For two years now there's been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, in case they weren't listening the first time, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Do you think it's some accident that Joseph says that God made him a father to Pharaoh? After so much pain from his own family growing up, from Joseph's own family growing up. God sent me ahead. He knew me and he knows you. And he knows this screwed up family. And he had a plan that transcended the fertility war (coughs) between our mothers that transcended the favoritism of our father, that transcended Joseph's own immaturity, that transcended their hate of their brother, that upends all the pain and the sadness and the broken bits of this story. It was to save your lives, he says, that he came to Egypt. It was to save your lives. Do you all remember... When Joseph was 17 years old and when God had given him the dream initially. He's a 17-year-old kid and he has this dream about stars bowing down to him. And he has a dream about the sun and the moon bowing down to him. And he has a dream about these other grains of wheat bowing down to him. And his family heard the dreams and they hated him for the dreams. Because they thought that him becoming some leader, he thought, they thought that his dreams coming true meant that their dreams would be over. How often do we think that? 
They think that his dream coming true will mean their destruction. But what does Joseph say about his dream coming true? Joseph says that when his dream came true, people are going to be saved and there's going to be life and second chances. Now look at what Joseph says in verse 9. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. Remember, Jacob thinks Joseph is dead, killed by wild animals. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and your herds and all you have, I will provide for you here. Because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You know, Joseph is a favorite son. What happens with the favorite son and the family in this place in this time? You get all the stuff. But not in this story. In this story, the favorite son (coughs) gives life to the rest of the family. Provides for the rest of the family. Who's the father here and who's the son? Jacob had sent the brothers with a plan, with a scheme for solving their crisis of famine. Now Joseph is solving the crisis decisively in a way that cuts through all of their deception and scheming and family pain. Look at verse 12. You can see for yourselves and so can my brother Benjamin that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt. And about everything you've seen. And bring my father down here quickly. Go and tell him the truth, Joseph says. Do you know what else they'll have to tell Jacob? Like, like maybe how is it that his favorite son is alive when he was told that he was killed by wild beasts? By the same brothers that are going to be coming back and telling him, Yeah, that thing about him being killed by wild beasts. Ah, We need to talk about that. That didn't really happen. Can you imagine all the the follow-up questions to that from Jacob? What do you mean that didn't happen? What did you do to my son? What did you do to my favorite son, the one I put the fancy coat on? They're going to have to tell the truth. But in this one conversation, everything changes. Everything turns. In it, the guilt of the brothers is powerfully dealt with. The grief of the father that Jacob has carried with him for decades will be revealed to be for nothing and can evaporate. And the trickery of Joseph melts away under the heat of his compassion. Look at verse 14. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Benjamin and Joseph, remember, are brothers from the same mother. Whereas their other brothers are brothers from alternative mothers. They've been separated for decades. And they thought that the other one was dead or worse. But he doesn't just embrace his favorite brother, Benjamin. He embraces all of his brothers, This isn't just drama. They actually talk and they connect with each other for the first time in so many years. And then look at what happens with the empire. 
When the news reached Pharaoh's palace in verse 16 that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this, load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. This is how compelling Joseph's story is. It's so compelling that it obliterates Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart. Not just yours and mine. It gets his attention. The grace of this story. The mercy in this story. Egyptians don't even eat with Hebrews, we've seen. But Pharaoh extends grace and provision to Joseph's family. He gives them the best. Verse 19, you're also directed to tell them, do this, take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives and get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings. What? Don't even worry about your belongings because the best of Egypt will be yours. What gets the attention of the empire? Grace. A compelling story about mercy moves the heart of Pharaoh to provide for a a Hebrew family that he would never even eat with. That's how compelling this story is. So the sons of Israel did this in verse 21. Joseph gave them carts as Pharaoh had commanded, but he also gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes because he's the favorite. And this is is what he sent to his father, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey. Then he sent his brothers away and as they were leaving, he said to them, because he's a brother, don't quarrel on the way. (laughs) Oh, the irony. (laughs) It's rich. Joseph is not some robot, right? This is one of the funniest lines in the whole Bible. I don't know why you're not laughing, but that's okay. It's okay. But like, don't quarrel on the, like, to brothers who had sold you into slavery because they hated you. Ah, don't quarrel on the way. Like, to those who had tricked you and who told your father that you were dead. Don't, don't like get in any fights on the way. You guys good? I'll, I'll see you soon. I hope. I'll see you soon. How do we know that Joseph's heart has melted? He sends his little brother Benjamin back with his brothers to his father. He would never do this if he didn't believe that they would do the right thing now. He still feels the need to remind them not to quarrel. But he trusts them. He must. Look at verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt. They came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. Don't ask any questions. He's still alive. He's ruler of all Egypt. Happy? Huh? Jacob's old, but he's not that old. You know what I mean? Like, he's old. I, I, what, what happens? He's, he's, Joseph, Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. Because of course he didn't. Because they are liars. They lie and they lie and they lie about lying. That's what they do. He's stunned. He doesn't believe them. Jacob has been paralyzed by grief at losing his favorite son. 
Grief which largely he is somewhat responsible for. Largely he is somewhat. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, I'm, he couldn't believe them. He doesn't trust them. But in verse 27, but when they told him everything that Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob was revived. This isn't just, and they lived happily ever after the end. He's got to see the carts from Egypt weighed down with stuff to believe them. He doesn't believe them otherwise. When you see a cart, like, like, it's got like, it doesn't have Pharaoh's face on it, but I picture like, it's got, some, it's Egyptian. You don't mistake, there's not just everyone running around with Egyptian carts. It's no mistake that even in this story, they are loaded with blessing and sent back. When he sees the carts, and Israel said, I'm convinced. Literally in the Hebrew, it's enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. The carts are convincing. They lie to him all the time, but they can't lie about the carts. God is not finished with Jacob's story, even here at the end. He believes, at least believes enough to go. Look at Genesis 46, verse 1. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night. And said, Jacob, Jacob, <coughs> when was the last time we heard God speak in Genesis? It was to Jacob, like in the wilderness. We don't see God talk to Joseph in this story. Like he gives him dreams, but you've had dreams, and I've had dreams. It's different than God saying, Jacob, Jacob, right? But he talks to this guy at the end of the story. This is interesting because what does it say about how God moves in the story? Jacob, Jacob, here I am. He replied, I am God, the God of your father. He said, Don't, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back again. And look at this. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. This is the thing that Jacob wants most. He's an old man. He's going to die. The idea that his favorite son would be there as he gets ready to take the next journey, to close his eyes, to be there with him when he dies, just melts Jacob's heart. It's, it's worth asking here, would, would God have to show up to Jacob if Jacob was fully on board? No. So we get a window into Jacob's heart here. We get a window in that, like, he goes along with his sons and he's convinced, but he needs more convincing, right? He needs God to show up in a vision to encourage him that, yeah, your, your sons are a bunch of just train wrecks, but you're going to see your favorite son again, and it's going to be okay. And the story is going to move forward. For all the twists and the turns and the missteps and the flaws and the mistakes that Jacob has made. Because we've followed him since he came out of the womb clutching the heel of his brother. 
God has a plan for his passing that is good and meaningful and life-giving to his family. Verse 5, then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives and the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport them. What a picture of a bunch of Hebrews in Egyptian carts going to Egypt. This is weird. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. They didn't really listen. They brought all their stuff. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and his granddaughters, all his offspring. Now for the sake of time, I'm going to spare you the list of people because the Bible actually records a list of people that go with him. But it's worth noting, worth noting one thing. In the fertility race between all of the brothers' mothers, between Jacob and his four wives, in the fertility race to have the most sons to get the most of Jacob's love, who do you think won? Who do you think won? Do you think it was his favorite wife, Rachel, the one that he wanted more than anything else? It wasn't. Leah, the least loved, the one who no one wanted, ends up the most significant in that list. So I'm not going to take you through the whole list, but know that even the list, even those lists of names that bore you to tears are significant and significant here. In verse 28, now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen because he doesn't know where he's going. And when they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. After decades, as soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and he wept for a long time. All the pain of all those years, all the isolation all the heartache, all the wondering, all of it is in that embrace. And Israel said to Joseph, now I am ready to die. Since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. For Jacob, Joseph being alive means that his family is going to be okay. They were starving in the land of Canaan. Joseph being alive, Joseph being second in command of all of Egypt, Joseph being at the exact right time, at the exact right place, means that the story will continue into the next generation. It means that hope is not lost for this group of people. He's at peace. And part of him didn't believe it till he saw it. But we see God uses everything done by people, but it's not restricted to anything done by people. Do you hear what I just said? Because this is the end. That God uses everything done by people, but it's not restricted by anything done by people. Here's what I mean. Who, who are the heroes in our story? Like, Joseph, kind of, right? But when it's, when it's put to it and his brothers show up and they're starving, what does Joseph do with his brothers? He plays a bunch of games with them. And he tricks them. And it takes one of his other brothers, the one who came up with the idea to sell him into slavery, 
to get his attention that there's something going on here that's much, much, much bigger than Joseph. That there is something going on here that is much bigger than Judah and all the other brothers. There's something much bigger than Jacob here. There's something infinitely bigger than Pharaoh. So much bigger than Pharaoh that Pharaoh is a footnote in our story. No one could have seen this coming. No one at the beginning of our story, if you've never heard it before, who had heard about a 17-year-old kid with a dream about his family bowing down to him, could have imagined the story that Joseph goes on. No one could have orchestrated this. In one of my favorite books, The Silmarillion, I have it right here. I just, I'm so happy that I brought this here today. You just have no idea how happy I am. Oh, oh it's good. I'm going to read to you from just a little section of this book. And remember, this is about God creating the, the world. This is about, this is a creation myth. And it's about the darkness trying to war with God against his purposes. Now, hopefully this will work out. Let's, 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 let's try it. Mighty are the angels, and mightiest among them is a prince of darkness. But that he may know, and all the world, that I am God, those things that you've sung, I'll, I'll show them to you, that you can see what you've done. But you, Satan, will see that no theme may be played that doesn't have its source in me its uttermost source, that no one can alter the music against me. For anyone that tries this will prove to be my instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself has not even imagined. I mean, that's not the Bible. It's fiction. It's it's a work of fiction. But in that work of fiction, we have this whisper that the darkness for all of its scheming, all of its scheming in this story, that all the broken things and the sinful things, all the destructive things for all of their scheming, for all of their trying, for all of their hate and greed and fear and jealousy, for all of it, that there's not one thing that can ruin the dreams of God. The Bible says, who can turn back the purposes of God? That Like once God has stretched out his hand and purposed something, who could slap his hand away and turn it back? He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. We don't even see what he does explicitly in this story. Yet none of us could have dreamed the grace and the mercy that we find in this story. What about you? What about the dissonance in your song, in your story? What story might God be trying to tell through that? Why don't we bow our heads and close our eyes? I know that was somewhat of a poetic ending, but what about your story? What about your song? 
if you, if you imagine it as a song, what parts are dissonant? What parts don't fit right now? Is there anything in your life where you look at it and you're like, I, there is no possible imagination for how this could turn out for good? The Bible in Romans says this, that from him and through him and to him are all things. All things. Maybe sit with that for a moment and ask God to give you his dream for your life. Ask God to give you the creativity to see how maybe that dissonant thing that thing that looks just, there's no way that that's part of the story. How could that become something even greater than you could ever ask or imagine? How could that wrong note be part of an even greater melody? Father, this is a tough teaching. This is a brutal teaching when we are in valleys and in tunnels and when there's dissonance and there's tension and there's grief and there's pain. God, I thank you that your word does not over explain <laughs> what you do in Joseph's story that frankly we don't even see it's, it's like you wound up the universe and you just and we see you intervene with a vision here and a and a moment of courage here we don't even see but we see you writing a story that is more beautiful that has more grace and more mercy than we could ever even wrap our minds around God, that when we started this story, we didn't see how Joseph's story could be anything but pain and heartache, darkness. God, there are things in my life and in the life of my friends that it is impossible to see how you might do something. Impossible to see how there might be something, anything but just noise from these notes. Father, by your spirit, would you shift our hearts? Would you, would you do some, some work in us that we could have a step of faith, a step of creativity that we could imagine, imagine a better song, a more compelling story God, that you would show us the ways that the pieces would start to fall together, that we could see how this broken thing is even in its 
brokenness going to be used. God, that we would see that from you and through you and to you are all things. Help us with this teaching. Help us apply it. In Jesus' name, for his kingdom's sake, amen.